Hey everyone, this is Patrick with the 307 RPG Podcast, and I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our amazing patrons. It's because of you that we're able to do the things that we do. If you like our show and you want to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash theforgehound. Thanks everyone, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 307 RPG Podcast. I'm Patrick. I'm Nolan. Nolan, what's new for you? What's going on? Tell us the fun stuff you've been doing, especially in Lord of the Rings lately. Um, still going with Lord of the Rings. Uh, still playing on the Timelock Progression server. The uh, new expansion for Helm's Deep uh, came out, so I was able to uh, pick up 10 levels and actually be at level cap instead of just leveling all the time. Um, got to play through... Uh, the new book kind of starts with showing up in Edoras and uh, Gandalf uh, basically freeing Theoden. So you get to be there to witness that. Um, and now you're kind of doing quests while uh, Theoden and uh, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli are all riding off, basically planning on going to war against uh, Sauron. You're back home with uh, Eowyn and helping her prepare the people to make for Dunharo. So it's been kind of fun. I got to see the Pass of the Dead. Uh, Edoras is really breathtaking. They've done a really good job with it. Um, so been doing a little bit of that. Got into the World of Warcraft Shadowlands beta. So very small amount of playing, testing there. And that's about it. Maybe a little, I don't know, that's it. Time flies. Yeah, it sure does. You know, I've been busy with uh, Diablo. Diablo 3. I'm struggling to get past Greater Rift 109. I would wager, as I've told you before, this is a gear issue, meaning I need to reforge my gear correctly because I'm terrible at it. And I know this. So one of these days, I'll actually sit down and try and get it done correctly. Until then, I'll just keep beating my head against the keyboard. That sounds terrible. But That's what- why we do it. Exactly. Other than that, it's been musical rehearsal and disc golf for me. I was able to go out uh, yesterday up to Story and play the course up there. It's a beautiful course. and I need to take you up there when your shoulder's feeling better. Yeah, you guys had fun though, right? John shot four under par. Goodness, he was made for that place. It's a beautiful, beautiful course and a lot of fun to play. So I, I can't wait to take you up there. So, okay. Sweet. Let's just jump right into it. So with 307 RPG News, of course, our last week we kicked off Rage Across August, and we're going to continue that tonight as we are today as we continue to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse. So this month-long event is much like we did with Mage Brewery back in February, where we took a month and explored the game Mage the Ascension. This time we're exploring Werewolf the Apocalypse. So in that vein, our topic for today is the breeds and auspices of Werewolf. But before we get into the topic of the night... Let's talk Dungeons and Dragons news, because there's a little bit of news, including a new UA, which Nolan is excited to tell us all about. So there is a new, I don't know if you saw this, Nolan, a new D&D themed card game. Have you seen this? No. I'm probably going to butcher this name. It's the Great Dalmudi? Dalmudi? Dalmudi. Uh, So this is a fast paced, this is a direct quote here, guys, a fast paced card game of one upmanship. Sometimes you roll a 1, and sometimes you roll a 20 and crush it. In the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game, the dice may control your fate, but in the Great Dalmudi, it's about how cleverly you play the cards you're dealt. One round, you're polishing your your royal crown, and the next, you're whacking rats in a filthy alley. It's a gloat-filled, winner-take-all contest in this D&D-themed version of a classic card game. So apparently this game's 
the great Dalmudi, anyway, as a game, has been around for a while, but now they've put a D&D spin on it. You know, I would like to see, um, as we kind of talk about that kind of stuff, I would love to see some of the games that are in, that you can have like dice sets and that kind of stuff for. It would actually be nice if they would put something like that out. And maybe this is something that you could use for your game, but, you know, what is it, Three Dragon Ante or whatever I know is just a pretty basic little dice set. But I'm surprised they haven't gone after that. You know, we saw the tarot cards for one expansion type thing or for one playbook. Don't know why they don't have, I want Three Dragon Ante. Yeah, it would be neat. You're right. Uh, some of these games that they talk about within the game, it'd be cool to be able to say, okay, you guys are sitting down at the bar. You know, maybe it's just a nice way to unwind and you sit down and quite literally break out the uh, the game, the Three Dragon Ante game, and actually play with your characters. Be in character. Like I said, I, I'm sure they have it. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, roll 3D6 and it's Yahtzee or something like that. But again, uh, they've capitalized on everything else i'm surprised you don't have the uh, uh big box of adventure games or something like that you don't have like five dice games and specific dice and and that kind of stuff but because we've had a few nights where it's like well somebody's running later whatever what do you want to do well you could bust out the dice do a little real gambling and let it lead to role playing or you know something like that Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that would be a lot of fun. So one of the things I didn't mention in the show notes and we should probably talk about is there is, a, I guess, a new version, uh, a revamped version of Curse of Strahd coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I should I should have put this in the, in the show notes, but I didn't. So this looks like it's going to uh, be a box set. Uh, it'll contain the revamped book, a DM screen, uh, the Taroka deck, uh, looks like some maps and other features that you can get as well. Uh, this is scheduled to be released, when is this? Uh, October 20th, so it's coming up fairly quick. Uh, and it carries with it a price tag of 100 bucks. It looked like a cool book, um, just from the, the, you know, it was kind of a, I don't know, maybe a little coffin style thing. So I, I, I don't know. It looked good. We'd kind of talked about it, you know, if you didn't already own it. Uh, a couple times over now through like D&D Beyond and the original. It's, yeah, so, and Nolan and I have had this discussion, but Curse of Strahd happens to be one of my favorite adventures. Strahd, Barovia, Ravenloft, the whole setting is one of my favorite D&D settings. So I'm I'm so torn on this one. And I know that when I say revamped, they did a lot of reworking. Um, they reworked the Vistani folk, um, trying to make it more inclusive and less, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Racist. That would be exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, less racist towards um to the towards the Vistani and and Romani people in general. So, uh, yeah, neat. Looks like it's going to be a neat pack. I'm going to include a link to the show notes uh, so you guys can check it out. So again, Curse Stroud happens to be my favorite. So I'm I'm going to look at this one. I don't know if I'll bite just because I already spent fifty dollars for the book. Yeah, and that's a again. It needs to. I don't know. It has a lot of cool things. Uh, I will give it that. And I think it, it would be a great, I think it's a good purchase. I mean, really just for, if you don't already have it or if you haven't played through it, or if I guess if you're getting ready to play through it again or something like that, but again, it's, it's expensive, but you get a lot with it. You know, that was the nice thing. Right. Right. It kind of reminds me of the Beatles and Grimm stuff without carrying a $500 price tag. Right. 
So that's coming out, like I said, October 20th. And back to the great Del Moody, uh, I, I did want to say that you can go ahead and pre-order that game at your friendly local game stores. It does carry a price tag of $14.99, so it's inexpensive. And it is designed for four to eight players, which is cool. As Nolan and I used to, we used to get together and play board games before, well, COVID. And it, it was always a struggle to find board games that had that allowed you to have more than four or five players. So we used to play things like Secret Hitler or... Um, the resistance, stuff like that, where we could include a lot of people. So this will be nice that you can have up to eight players and, and still be able to play the game. So that's cool. I know that's part of the reason why we're so excited about the, they be, they came from series as well. So nice to see another branch coming up. Right. Um, we do have a new UA and I'm going to turn it over to you, sir. Okay. Well, it was interesting to see a new UA dealing completely with spirits and undead. And I think uh, we've seen a couple of these themes uh, where it's dealing with some different uh, unnatural. Uh, we kind of saw the Revenant Rogue where it, it deals with being reborn and being able to change your skills. Uh, you had mentioned a couple times from, was it Waterdeep and Volo talking about a new book? Yeah, it was kind of my running joke as we were because we were streaming Waterdeep at the time, and they they kept mentioning that Vol well Volo is in Waterdeep Dragon's Dragon Heist, and he's trying to fund his new book uh, Spirits Inspectors, and I just joked all the time about how this was going to be the next Volo's guide. Uh, it'd be Volo's guide to Spirits Inspectors. So I'm wondering if it's actually true. Some uh, subliminal messaging inside the game. Possibly. Um, okay, so we got two this week. Uh, we got Bard, College of Spirits. Uh, the brief description on it is, stories of the past are powerful. They hold lessons of history, philosophy, and magic. Bards of the College of Spirits seek the stories of those from beyond the material plane. Using gaming sets, they reach out to hear their stories, but the bards have no control over the stories they find. So you get a Ouija board, which I thought was hilarious. Um, that is hilarious. Uh, so many things on there, you, uh, at their level, you learn the guidance can trip where you're like, well, that's okay. But now you get it at a range of 60 feet. So now you can, in, uh, it's kind of a, a mini way to inspire people. Uh, and you could use it during combat versus kind of like, uh, before they do a skill, before they kick open the door type stuff. So now you can kind of, if you're out of inspirations for the day, you can call on guidance from basically the spirits to aid your allies, which I thought was really cool. Um, uh, it does look like it has kind of a hybrid feel between that support side uh, and then also get some bonuses to healing. It talks about uh, at sixth level when you cast bard spells that deal damage or restore hit points through the spiritual focus, which your focus can be a candle, a crystal ball, a talking board, a tarot deck, or a skull. Uh, while you're holding that spiritual focus and casting through it, roll a d6. You gain a bonus to one roll of the spell equal to the number rolled. So I can I, I instantly go to, okay, now you're going to add a d6 onto every healing word. Now it's a pretty good spell. You pick up maybe one level of life cleric, which it would be kind of interesting on a spirit's bard. So you're dealing with life and death. Um, but now you're adding plus two plus you know some modifiers to the hit you know all of a sudden that healing word turns from 1d4 plus you know your charisma bonus into 1d4 plus your charisma bonus plus three plus a d6 it actually becomes a pretty worthy uh spell other than just waiting for somebody to go down and play in whack-a-mole and bring them back up that's cool 
Um, let's see here. Sounds like they get some uh, short rest, long rest type ability where you can reach out to spirits and you can have them tell their story through you. While you're holding a spiritual focus, you can use a bonus action to expend one of the uses of your bardic inspiration and roll on the spirits table using your bardic inspiration die to determine the tale told. You retain the tale in your mind and you bestow the tale's effect uh, and uh, until you dispel wow that's really hard retain the tail in your mind until you bestow the tail's effect or you finish a short or long rest you can choose an action or on an action you can choose one creature you can see within 30 feet and that target becomes the effect of that tail so you roll a one you are inspired from a spirit by the tail of the beast you recite the tale of a clever animal. For one minute, the target has advantage on wisdom perception checks and advantage on attack rolls against a creature if another enemy is within five feet of it and the enemy is incapacitated. So these different spirits, and it runs from beast, warrior, friends, runaway, avenger, hero, fae, dark spirit, giant, dragon, celestial, and unknown. Wow. So, so kind of a, a fun, kind of chaotic, random thing where every time you do this, I think you would have fun, you know, inspiring somebody over and over can get, well, I inspire, I hope they use the, the thing. Now it's like, well, I'm going to burn an inspiration. I'm going to learn the tale of the dragon. And once I recite that dragon to you, you breathe a poem of the wrathful dragon. Uh, the target magically spews fire from their mouth on a 30-foot cone. Each creature in that area makes a dexterity saving throw, taking fire damage equal to three rolls of your bardic inspiration dice on a failed save, or half as much on a successful one. That becomes a lot more memorable of a thing that, hey, uh, guess what? You're breathing fire right now. Uh, now I don't have to worry about you wasting my inspiration dice. So some some pretty neat things. You get some bonus to insights because of the spirits, and I think with a little bit of tuning, that would be a lot of fun. That sounds like it could be. Uh, the other one we got, since we only got two this week, was Warlock and another worldly patron of the undead. So it says, for the Warlock, the undead is an entity that resides in the dark corners of the multiverse. Your patron could be a Sarak, Azelian, Lord Soth, Strahd, or some other ancient undead being. You may seek to gain knowledge from your patron countless lifetimes of experience, while it may see you as a piece of a century-long plan. So kind of in vain of what we were talking about there, but uh, uh, increases the uh, your, your warlock spell list, adding things like Bane, False Life, Blindness, Speak with Dead, Phantom Steed, uh, kind of fitting in the theme. Form of Dread is the first level feature. You manifest an aspect of your patron's dreadful power. As a bonus action, you transform for one minute. You gain the following benefits while you're transformed. You gain temporary hit points equal to 1d10 plus your warlock level. Once during each of your turns, when you hit a creature with an attack, you can force it to make a wisdom saving throw. And if the saving throw fails, the target is frightened of you until the end of your next turn. You yourself are immune to the frightened condition. So you can transform a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. You regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. The appearance of your form of dread reflects some aspect of your patron. For example, your form could be a shroud of shadows forming the crown and robes of your lich patron, or your face might transform into a bat-like features due to your vampire patron. That's cool. Yeah, I, I liked it. I, I thought that was kind of neat. Um, there was a at grave to touch is their six level ability. Your patron's powers now start to affect the spells you cast, um, also affecting you. So you don't need to eat, drink, or breathe. 
In addition, when you hit a creature with an attack or damage roll, uh, you can replace the damage type with necrotic damage. While you're using your form of dread, you can roll one additional damage die when determining the necrotic damage the target takes. So I thought that was kind of neat. That would be really interesting. Again, it's on a Warlock. Uh, Eldritch Blast is force damage. Now we turn it from at, you know, at this level, you'd be 2d10. Um, so now all of a sudden you're pumping out an extra d10 of necrotic damage uh, on a, you know, on a, a Eldritch Blast, one of the, already the best cantrips in the game on one of the best classes that use it. it becomes a pretty meaningful uh, kind of arranged archer type class. So uh, probably needs a little bit of work. I know a lot of stuff is resistant to necrotic, but maybe that's part of the power as well. Uh, an extra couple d10 is some pretty significant damage. Yeah, it really is. Eventually gaining stuff uh, like uh, resistance to necrotic damage. Um, and while you're in your dread form, you're actually immune to necrotic. So it seems like the host kind of eventually takes over a little bit more. In addition, when you are reduced to zero hit points, you cause your body to explode. Each creature within 30 feet takes necrotic damage equal to 2d10 plus your warlock level. You then revive with one hit point at your previous space along with your gear, and you gain one level of exhaustion. Once you revive this way, you can't do so until you finish 1d4 long rests. So just more of kind of that theme of you yourself are becoming part of this vessel. Um, different things. I think their final thing that they get is like their spirit can remain outside their body for an hour, uh, <laughs> which is kind of cool. So, yeah. Anyway. So, you, so you can cause your body to explode and then it comes back together. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a final joke of type thing, and then you're just there with one hit point. So it's so gross. It's uh, it's interesting. I I'm not a huge fan of things that says when you reduce to zero hit points. <clears throat> just from a standpoint of, I, I think I played a zealot barbarian, and it's like, well, this is counterproductive. Half my cool stuff happens when I die or don't die. <laughs> you're just sitting there. Look, I need you to hit me. Hit yeah. me, please. It, it's very counterintuitive, but I don't want my character to die. But I have to get. I have to die to make this stuff happen. And so it, it's an awkward thing of, I guess, you know, especially like as a barbarian, at least it's a tank thing. And you're like, well, at least I died protecting the party here. It's like, you're supposed to be a warlock. Hopefully you're not getting hit too much. I don't know. You just see Durvar going, Hey guys, hold on. I got this. I just, just hold on. And then charging off to fight the big baddie and don't and do just, anything yeah, until I, I disappear. I, I need this to happen. Leave it alone. <laughs> Oh my God, he blew up. I think that was the <laughs> sign. I think we can do stuff now. <laughs> That's too funny. So that was it for UA. A couple of nice little spirit undead style things. Don't know what's coming. Curious to see what the theme is. Maybe it is the spirits inspectors. We've got a lot of UA stuff out there that still needs to get uh, into our hands as far as oh. playing. Yeah. The other thing that I was thinking about on this here was I, I know we saw like the redemption or the, the heroism paladin uh, a while back. It eventually made its way into Theros. I'm not so certain we may not, but I'm not so certain we might not be going to Innistrad. That's definitely possible. Innistrad does have a lot of ghosts and specters and such. So yeah, you might be Vampires. right. Vampires. So that was the thing I thought I was I was getting excited for maybe another source book of something like a, that. And then I got really sad thinking that maybe it was just another uh, magic. 
game. Although, you know, when it comes to magic and uh, D&D crossovers, Innistrad's probably the one I would be the most interested in. Yeah, I agree. I really do enjoy the the theme around it is very uh, Strahdland, whatever, Barovia. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And so, so it really fits into that. And again, we play vampire, we play werewolf, and we like the darker tones. Typically, at least I do. And I just drag you guys along. Yep. All right. Speaking of the darker tones, let's head over to the Onyx Bath. So Kickstarter for They Came From the Beyond the Grave is doing well. It looks like they've doubled what they were initially asking for. So they're knocking down stretch goals now. It's, if it's something you've on the fence about, rest assured, it is funded. They are knocking down stretch goals. It is going to happen. So I, I would recommend you go check that one out. They came from um, that whole series. We've done a lot of talking with Matthew Dawkins and because uh, it, it is his creation. And just listening to him talk about it and you know, seeing some of the actual plays that have come out, this series looks like a ton of fun with horror injected into your laughter, really. <laughs> so I highly recommend you check out They Came From Beyond the Grave. On sale this week, speaking of They Came From, this is kind of exciting, is They Came From Beneath the Sea PDFs and PODs. Um, I'm excited to get this book. Again, we've talked quite a bit about it. It's neat that we're actually seeing the PODs hitting drive through RPG. So if this is a game that you did not kickstart and you're still and you're interested in checking it out, head over to drive through RPG. You can grab a copy of it now. Um, you know, Nolan, I sometimes enjoy, well, we've done it once. So we did a Halloween game and I do enjoy doing those. Maybe this year we'll get together and play. They came from beneath the sea. I'd be down. Could be a lot of fun. Um, those of you who were backers for They Came From Beneath the Sea, you might check your email because they did send out the at almost cost coupons for the PODs for the deluxe and standard printed copies of They Came From Beneath the Sea. So if that is something you wanted an extra copy of at a little bit more of a reduced cost, now is your chance to grab it. You should have also received the print on demand coupon for the Quips deck. Uh, it's an inexpensive deck and a neat addition to your game. So I would recommend you check that out if you were a backer. Other than that, I didn't see a whole lot of news from the Onyx Path. I guess, you know, the stuff is moving along in the production side. I did see that they came from Beneath the Sea has shipped to fulfillment centers. So that is getting ready to ship out to backers, which is excellent. Uh, I'd imagine once they came from Beyond the Grave is wrapped up, we'll get word on what the next Kickstarter will be. Nolan, have you seen anything else that I'm missing from the Onyx Path? I've not. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty quiet. I think we might just be in the, that time period where there's not a lot coming out from anybody because over at Chaosium, again, didn't really see anything new. I did notice that you can get the beautiful deluxe version of Harlem Unbound from Darker Hughes Studio. Uh, this is Chris Spivey's award-winning book. Uh, these deluxe versions are really awesome looking. Uh, you can check it out. I have a link in the show notes for you to look at that. Um, at Modifius, there is a new release coming out over there. They have a new book coming out for the Star Trek Adventures RPG. I saw an email for it, but I accidentally deleted it in my trash cleaned it out pretty quick uh this is going to be um this is going to introduce the nx class starships to the game now if you're a fan of star trek you should know that the nx class starships this is what captain archer and his crew manned in star trek enterprise these were the first ships that were outfitted with the warp 5 engine if i'm not mistaken the warp 5 engine was captain archer's father's creation 
So it's kind of neat to you know see these classic starships, classic. It's funny to say classic because Star Trek Enterprise came out way after the original series, but uh, it does take place in the whole world before the original series. This is the very first crew of the Enterprise. So it's neat to see them include the NX class starships to the game. Okay, that was a mouthful. All right, so that does bring us to our topic of the day because there's just not a whole lot else going on. And before we get to our topic of the day, we're going to take a quick coffee break. Sounds good. Hey everyone, it's Patrick here with 307 RPG. While Nolan and I are off getting coffee, I thought this would be a really good time to talk to you about giving us ideas. See, we're always trying to find new things to do on our show, new games to talk about, and sometimes we just hit a wall because there's so many games that we don't know about. So if there's a game that you'd like us to do a deep dive into, drop us a line. You can hit me up on Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram at 307RPG. We'd love to hear any idea that you might have. Thanks everyone. Now back to the show. Have you heard about this new HBO show, Lovecraft Country? No. So let's see here. It's based on Matt Ruff's novel of the same name, Lovecraft Country, follows Atticus Freeman as he meets up with his friend Letitia and his uncle George to embark on a road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America in search of his missing father. This begins a struggle to survive and overcome both the racist terrors of white America and the terrifying monsters that could be ripped from a Lovecraft paperback. Lovecraft Country is executively produced by Misha Green, who also serves as showrunner J.J. Abrams, Jordan Peele, Bill Carrero, Jan Demange, I'm probably butchering that name, Daniel Sackheim, and David Noller. And it's based on the novel by Matt Ruff. So if I tell you, and it's almost, I, I might just include this in the, um, the show, because if you're a fan of Call of Cthulhu, this might be right up your alley. Interesting. Yeah, you know, Jordan Peele does some... It's funny, because I think whenever I think of Jordan Peele, I think of obviously Key and Peele, and some of his horror stuff is downright scary. Yeah, he's got quite a great mind for it. Really does. So anyway, I I didn't know if you had seen that. Uh, Thought I'd mention it, because it looks really fascinating. That'll be interesting. That will be really interesting. Yeah, it will. Okay, so let's get back to it. All right, so our topic of the day is the breeds and auspices for Werewolf the Apocalypse as we continue our rage across August. As we tend to do on our show, Nolan and I are going to take turns talking about each of these, starting with the breeds. This is just a quick overview. Over, Sorry. This is just a quick overview of the breeds and auspices. It's designed more as an introduction for news player for new players and not necessarily a deep dive into what each of these are. So it's just a quick, this is what this breed is, this is what this auspice is. And sometimes we like to say, okay, this is how I would use it. This is, you know, what we see in relation to other games that we play. So, Nolan, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. So pick a breed and start with it. I will start with the first one as they come to us. So uh, when we're looking at breeds, I guess the the idea behind breed is its true nature, uh, basically how it was born. And depending on what you are, a Hamid is raised in a human society. A Lupus is raised in a werewolf society. And a Metis is kind of not supposed to exist so i'll let patrick do that one there because that one's a little more 
I don't know. It's it's a little more interesting, I think, than some of the other ones, just because it's it's different. It comes with its own things. So, uh, homids are werewolves that grow up in a human society. Um, one of the type of people that basically is kind of drawn to nature a little bit more so than society has a hard time kind of fitting in, doesn't really understand um, just because some of it could be, you know, sensory overload, uh, too much going on. Um, but basically it, it's one of those things of you're born a human and at some point around, is it a little bit after puberty around puberty, uh, you have your first change. Um, it's kind of a, I think it, I guess I don't know the, the, the more common side of things, but for me, it was one of the ones that appealed for me most just from a standpoint of, I think I can relate to it a little bit better. Uh, it's probably more stereotypical of what I'm used to as far as stories or uh, even just role playing of, I can, I can see myself being a human becoming a werewolf. I can't really see myself becoming uh, or being a wolf becoming a werewolf because I don't know, I mean, I I just can't wrap my head around being a dog. <laughs> well, and, and I think I think I could see that too, especially if you look at you you mentioned stories. When you think of like the classic Wolfman, I mean he wasn't born a Hamid, but at least you have that idea of here is a human who transforms into a werewolf. And I think, like you said, in classic literature, this is more relatable. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of our stereotypical of what we what we've seen. Um yeah, it's I, like I said, I think it was probably the easiest one for me to kind of wrap my head around. I think it also has the most uh, potential to be kind of a protector of people. So I think that can go into the, the role play of, you know, something didn't feel right, something didn't do that, but I also understand it. You know, if you are a, a wolf that becomes a werewolf, then now I can go back and forth. Most likely you didn't learn how to drive because wolves don't learn how to drive. So <laughs> some of that stuff could be really fun. You could also be kind of a guide. Uh, probably more inclined to, I think a werewolf is what general nature is to protect nature, not necessarily protect humans. Uh, right. And in most cases, humans are a detriment to nature. So this here kind of is probably that buffer to keep the werewolves from just having enough of the humans and be like, all right, you guys had your chance. You failed horribly. Get out. So that is the Hamid. And it's important to remember, especially when it comes to the Hamid, is typically you are born to kinfolk parents. And kinfolk is a really important, and this is true with all these breeds, kinfolk parents or kinfolk in, in and of itself is a very, very important term to remember within Werewolf the Apocalypse because the kinfolk are people who are related to the werewolves. They know they're related to werewolves, but they don't have the ability to change. So they are, you know, sympathetic and, and helpful and they do everything they can to be a part of Garu's society without actually being a part of it. So med or Hamids typically are born to kinfolk parents. And that's that's really important that people remember that because yes, you are born human, but your parents usually have a good idea of what's going on. Yeah, what is it? It requires their is it your mother side kind of dictates what you are? And I don't know if that's from the book or if that was just something I was reading through like a Wikipedia or something like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, and I, I guess the other thing we should add, Nolan, is that these are all based on Werewolf the Apocalypse 20th Anniversary Edition. Now, the Breeds and Auspices have pretty much stayed the same with some minor changes. But I just want to clarify that we are working off the 20th Anniversary book. Okay, so let's talk about the Metis, and then we'll let Nolan wrap us up with the Lupus. The Metis, like, is like, like Nolan said, is kind of the weird one of the group because 
it's almost an abomination and it is definitely looked down upon. And, and the reason is, is because this is the child of two werewolves and this is something that shouldn't happen. Um, they grow up uh, instinctive with Metis grew up with an instinctive understanding of Gara society in the spirit world, as well as an affinity towards shapeshifting. You would think that this would make sense for them to be born this way, but it's not usually because they are deformed in some way. Some Metis are born with missing limbs. Some they're born disfigured. They're hideous. Some of them are just straight born insane. Metis are always sterile, meaning they cannot pass on, quote, the gift. And they are frowned upon by Garu society. So Metis, a Metis child is going to face all sorts of issues. They're going to be looked down upon. They're going to be unworthy. They're going to be shamed. They're going to be treated poorly by other Garu. And they have... A difficult task ahead of them to try to prove themselves uh, as as being someone who is a good addition to the pack or not just the pack but to the Karen in and of itself so Metis are always born in Krinos form and in, you know, we haven't really talked about the forms at all but the Krinos form is the big war form this is the the typical wolfman actually I always when I think about the Krinos form I can't help but remember the movie American Werewolf in London and this is a classic horror movie. I'm not talking about the remake. I'm talking about the classic one that came out in the 80s. And I was a small child when it came out. And I <laughs> I don't know if I had snuck down to into the living room to see what my parents were watching. But I was hiding behind the couch. And I remember peeking over the couch and watching this human transform into a werewolf. And it is the big, big, bulky werewolf that that of thing that nightmares are made of and it scared the shit out of me and i jumped up and ran back upstairs and of course got caught for what i was doing but also if you think about the movie silver bullet the werewolf in that would be a crinosed werewolf so this is the big tall war breed monster of a werewolf and that's how they're born and werewolf or a crinos like nolan said with the with the homids they usually experience the change um during puberty or the onset of pure puberty for a metis it could be anywhere during their first year of life to the onset of puberty because of this they are raised in the sept away from humans now the bonus to this is that they are well versed in garu society by the time they're ready to undergo the rite of passage and it's not uncommon for them to learn rights simply by observing as long as they're allowed to do it again Metis do not have an easy life. They are looked looked down upon. They're shunned. Um, but it doesn't mean that oh, Metis can't raise themselves to some level of renown. So that is the Metis. Yeah, the thing I like about them was uh, they they pose some pretty significant threats. Uh, I guess when you when you die, you revert to your natural form. And so if they die in battle or something like that in the middle of a busy street, they don't turn into a human or a wolf. There's just a big lycanthrope sitting there right in the middle of town, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and part of the reason they're not allowed, right, is because of, uh, I believe they were cursed. And it's some sort of rumor that uh, the it's kind of their Gehenna is the end times come when the perfect Metis is born. They are they, they reminded me a lot of like the Malkavians, right? The Malkavians were cursed, um, but if they weren't deranged, they would easily be, you know, quite literally the strongest of vampires, the scariest just because of their abilities. And that's kind of what this is. They are, they are deformed and stunted 
because of a curse to prevent them from being too much, too strong. You know, you can really uh, playing a Metis has, I think, has a lot of neat uh, role playing opportunities. Yes, you're going to deal with some of the shame and stuff, but I think. You, you are actively trying to prove yourself and some of the stuff you deal with, like with, they said the deformities and stuff, like it could be, you know, missing a limb or you're hairless. You're completely bald. When you ship into shift into a crinos form, you're just this almost, you know, well, not almost, but you're just a skin covered werewolf instead of a fur covered werewolf. And, and like you said, it, there is that issue of breaking the veil, um, in the veil and in, in is what we would call the masquerade and where and for werewolf um so the veil means you know you're supposed to hide yourself from human eyes now thankfully they have the delirium to protect them a little bit but it isn't going to help if a metis gets killed and then shifts back into the crinos form and just lays there on the ground and dead that's going to be just like nolan said that's a bad thing right i liked i liked this one i thought this was uh, i think it's a neat one um I like the idea too that they talk about a little bit of the deformity. You could be insane, so it kind of has that Malkavian vibe. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's neat. I think there's a lot of room for story with that one as well. Just the outsider, the shunned one, or again, you know, you're the spawn of two uh, two Garu. You're not supposed to exist, so they see you coming though because they know. You know what I mean? They know what they're getting when the pregnancy happens. They know what they're getting when it happens. So there's also an opportunity, like you said, to be raised in a society and be that knowledge expert for you know the guide for fresh changes. You know that kind of stuff too. So you can you have a lot of room to go with this one, and I think that's kind of. I mean, you have a lot of room with all of them, but I I feel like this one here kind of knocked a little bit more of my creative curiosities. Yeah. Cool. Well, why don't you tell us about the last breed? Yeah, lupus. Lupus is the werewolf child of a wolf and a werewolf, um, or more rarely, two kinfolk wolves. Uh, so you are a wolf for the first cycles of your life until the change happens. Uh, you gives you a little bit more wild, causes you to be uh, a little more stunted and humanistic stuff. Uh, some of the stuff they talk about is like the language barrier for lupus just because they haven't who's going to teach them english um so if you, you again role playing on this here you could hopefully somebody found you early enough to teach you the basics so you're not just a wild man super confused um yeah uh, so um these guys here also have kind of a, a deeper connection to uh, to the nature side of things. Um, human world is more confusing they, just because they have little understanding of it. Uh, many of these outside of, you know, your character probably uh, never even actually learn the human language. Uh, most people, most of them hate technology. Uh, and then they also, again, kind of that gap between humans and stuff like that, they also see human as a reason for most of the problems in the world. Um, so I, again, and from a role-playing standpoint, kind of, a maybe be a little bit more standoffish, not liking town. Um, I think it'd be uh, great to have, you know, some, some broken English, not knowing how to drive, not understanding cell phones. You, you give yourself a lot of room to kind of be discovering the world for the first time. Um, instead of handshakes, you sniffing other people as a way of saying hello, uh, 
<laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of stuff there you could have you could have fun with it being socially awkward um, and really play into this form. Uh, one thing that is tough for me anytime I, I role play a game or get into that kind of game, uh, they have a shorter lifespan because their lifespan is based upon that of a wolf and not that of a human. Um, so knowing that you don't have long to live, it, knowing that they probably changed, you know, they may be all of five, six years old uh, when they when they first changed. So the world and remembering the time is different for the lifespan of a wolf, I, I think also adds to that maybe sense of urgency. So another good role-playing aspect on it. Um, yeah, that's the, that's kind of our overview of the lupus. Yep, and that's so that's the breeds for Werewolf the Apocalypse. There's just three of them: the Metis, the Wow, I just drew a blink. The Hamid, the Metis, and the Lupus. What we just talk about it, and I go mind blank. This is dumb. Um, and I do want to say there are stats that come along with your breeds. We're just not going into that again. This is just a quick overview of the breeds and auspices. So that does bring us to the auspices, and I'll kick us off with this one. Um, the auspices is, is the moon that you are born under. This is your ancient legacy, and this is going to shape your worldview uh, as you go on to fight the worm. Um, this is your place in that fight, and there's all sorts of different things. This is almost like, I hate to say class within, um, like you would for D&D, but it really does ring to me that it's it's class-like in that. And Alex, you'll understand in just a second. So we'll start with the very first one, and that is the new moon. A child born under the new moon, blah. A child born under the new moon is destined to be a master of stealth, trickery, and guile. Uh, so think your rogue. This is called the Ragabash, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, so the Ragabash, uh, they're, they're more willing to break or at least bend the rules of Garrow society uh, that other werewolves would never think about breaking. Um the thinking is very, according to the book, it says the thinking is, is simple. If a tenant does not stand up under questioning, it should not be observed at all. The Garu hunt under the dark of the moon, coming up with tactics to kill a foe that make a more honorable Garu blanch. A new moon werewolf is called the Ragabash. So yeah, these are the sneaky ones, the guys who are going to hide in the shadows and do the stuff that uh, other breeds or other auspices, sorry, would be more willing to stand and fight, you know, face first. So Ragabashes very much remind me of rogues, assassins, uh, and even somewhat rangers in Dungeons and Dragons. I liked them from a standpoint too, is that a lot of their uh, their tricks and pranks are not uh, not mean hearted. They're not that way. They're it's more about uh, teaching a lesson. So, like you said, you know, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like maybe if you had Loki as a good guy or whatever, and be like, no, okay, I get it. You're mad, but what did you learn? Right. <laughs> so, Nolan, tell us about the crescent moon. So, those born beneath the crescent moon are Thurge. Uh, they are mystics and seers. Uh, they have a natural affinity with the spirits and most often can speak with them, uh, sometimes causing them to join in their cause. Uh, and every now and then, you'll get ones that are powerful enough to be able to force them to do their bidding. Uh, they can also be associated with healing as well. Uh, they, um, let's see, it sounds like, again, all werewolves can commune with spirits, but crescent moons are born with it. They don't have to learn it. They've been, they kind of are emissaries to the other side. Uh, so you're, 
maybe kind of like a medicine man shaman style. Yeah, I think that's a great way to explain it. Thurges are kind of neat, especially when it comes to umbral beings and umbral is the, the shadow world of our world. Thurges typically act as emissaries to those powerful umbral beings. Um, really neat. They, these are definitely your spirit walkers here. So the half moon, and again, guys, this is just a quick overview. The half moon werewolf, um, these are your judges, your balancers. These are they're caught between extremes, man and wolf, Garou, Garou and human, adaptation and tradition, spirit and flesh. Um, they are taught the litany and its interpretation from the entry into Garou society, and they are expected uh, to be mediators when necessary. They're expected to levy punishment on other werewolves. Again, they are the judges, both of their fellow, fellow Garou and of their foes. The question of whether a being is irredeemably worm-tainted is often left to the half-moons. These are called the philodox. So, uh, you know, I can see this in a situation where you do have a werewolf who has done something that maybe is against the cairn or, or against the sept and it needs to be pulled in. It's going to be the philodoxes who say, okay, you know what? You've wronged us and this is what you're going to have to do. Either you're going to A, die, or B, you have to fight to prove your honor or see you're going to undertake a suicide mission and if you survive well then i guess guy is showing favor to you again something like when it came from stats they were kind of the the balance between all things as well since it's a half moon kind of gives them kind of a, a bardic jack of all trades they're pretty good fighters they're pretty good seers they're pretty good healers i mean they kind of middle ground that's fair you want to tell us about the gibbous moon yeah, uh, so the ones born beneath the gibbous moon are, I probably butcher this as well, Gilliard? Uh, Galliard, yeah. Galliard, okay. Um, so this here, they are kind of, sounds like they're fairly decent in the combat realm, but they are not the, you know, that's not what they're most norm, known for. Um, they are also the story keepers. Uh, they're kind of the lore tellers, uh, knowledge seekers not so much in a uh, as they describe it not so much as in like a, a jester or an actor uh, they're just kind of more about the knowledge of that kind of bard um, they keep traditions they're the ones that can recite the oral history um, and just depending on the situation usually whether it's a, a fireside gathering they talk about or uh, just howling on a moonside they are able to recite um uh, tales of the past their songs uh, can rouse the pack uh, into a frenzy or calm them down uh, just to just kind of soothe the moment after a fight as well so so lore college bard yeah yeah galliards have always screamed bard to me uh, I think if I remember correctly, the Fianna I played was a Galliard and I was tasked every once in a while to come up with stories. Uh, sometimes it was just about the stuff that we did as our as our pack as we ran around doing things. Other times I would, you know, quickly grab the werewolf book and try to read some history of different tribes and I would recite stories from those tribes. And it was it was a lot of fun. Nice. Yep. So Galliards are cool. I greatly enjoyed playing that. Now the full moon, this is 
you know, you're under, you're born under the full moon. And, and of course, full moons are so stereotypical with werewolves in and of themselves. It makes sense that this is the Ahrun, the warriors. These are the killers. They are trained in the bloody arts from the moment that their people find them. So these are the, the, the vicious warriors, the alphas, the leaders. They are the ones who are suited to go out and shred you apart for violating anything against Gaia. Um, they enforce the litany uh, rather than interpret it. Um, they tend to lead the war packs. I mean, really barbarian, if you want to think about it that way, uh, you know, the barbarians who um, have absolutely frenzied and are just going off to destroy whatever's in their path. And in a Krynos werewolf, Ahrun, that's, they're just going to destroy everything. <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like they were very much the, uh, that's your combat, ready to go, kick in the door. And again, size-wise, it sounds like they're bigger. I mean, it's just a, a very intimidating sight. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I do want to go and, and just kind of say, or not kind of say, I do want to say, here's something you have to keep in mind when you're when you're creating a werewolf character, is that although the Ahrun are definitely the warriors and they're built to that, all Garu are fighters. And when you go into a Krinos form, the bumps that you get in stats are insane. And your capabilities, no matter what auspice you choose, are huge. It's being able to use the gifts that you receive under your auspice to your advantage in that fight. Whereas the Ahrun is going to be, you know, definitely the physical one. The Galliard is going to get other ways to do stuff. The Philodox is going to get other ways to do stuff. The Ragabash is going to be the sneaky one who's able to go around behind the the, the big, bad, evil person that you're fighting and, and do stuff that way. Whereas the Ahrun is going to be well, a tank, if you will, and up there, you know, swinging and, and drawing the attention of the big baddie. So don't don't think that, oh, I'm a Galliard, I can't fight. That's not the case at all. You will be able to fight. So, Nolan, that's all the auspices and breeds. I can dig it. I, you know, it's a being a new game, they uh, to us, or to me at least, you know, I think that's one of those things of you try and associate some things to make it make sense um, of the games that we've played. Um, these here feel very different. Um, I think there's a lot more to it. I think getting into the world would be really neat. And again, I don't play animals that much. So I think there's a lot of stuff to really kind of stretch and challenge and try and figure out if it's, you know, again, playing a person that for the first four years of its life was, uh, you know, a human or a, a wolf and all of a sudden is in this society that's completely different and, I think that makes for just some some fun stretches um, and probably some awkward moments, which I think could be fun. Uh, I also look at it as kind of, I think I thought about these things as kind of like, well, these are the good guys. Um, and I think they are, but I think it's deeper than that. I think the world is still dark. Um, I think they're still not necessarily selfish. I think it's like that druid who is like, well, we have to preserve balance in all things. Like, I guess I'll fight on this other team, you know, type thing. It's like, well, that seems pretty, you know, wrong or whatever, but we just don't understand that side of things, I guess. So uh, I think being a nature's warrior type thing, you still probably, you, you could really easily 
just as easily be evil to humans like vampires are. And I think that's kind of one of those things of you need to look at relative good uh, and what is good in the grand scheme of things. Because really, I mean, vampires will kind of go out of their way to make sure that humans are okay and taken care of because they need them for food where a werewolf might just be like, I don't need you at all because we have nature and we have wolves and uh, you're a plague and could just be done with it. So I, I could see that being kind of a a weird, not necessarily second inquisition, but werewolves just getting kind of pissed off and creating a, a story around them having enough and trying to be like, you just can't kill all the humans. I understand that the world would be better, but uh, nature would probably be better, but this isn't the way we do things. So it's interesting that you say that because there was a tribe of werewolves and, and I talked with Josh Heath about this and I actually talked with Carrie about it uh, yesterday when I interviewed her. She's going to be on the show next week to tell us all about the baddies and villains of Werewolf the Apocalypse. Mind you, we talked for an hour and we barely scratched the surface, so it's going to be a good one. Um, but it, uh, you mentioned that, that werewolves are you could see them being both good and bad and I think you're absolutely right because it is the world of darkness. In in sometimes the actions that they take what they think is good end up being extremely bad. And a prime example of that is the white howlers. So the white howlers was a tribe of um, uh, Scottish Pictish people, P I C T um, from the British Isles. And this is, you know, way back when and the white howlers had decided that they had figured out how they could strike a death blow to the worm and they were going to rally all the garu to come together and they were going to make this one final massive strike against the worm and purge the worm for gaia from gaia forever this was i mean it's a really noble cause if you think about it i mean this is their biggest charge is to protect gaia and this is one of the gaia's biggest enemies one of there's many so they tried to get the Garu Nation to come together to do this, and the Garu were like, dude, you're wrong. You, we shouldn't be doing this. This isn't how it's going to, you know, you're going to fail. This is not going to work for you. And the White Howlers, full of pride, said, no, you're wrong. We can do this. And they made their attempt. And as a result, they fell from grace and became the Black Spiral Dancers, which is one of the worm, well, it is the worm-tainted tribe of, or yeah, tribe of Garu, who now fight against Garu Nation. All right, they ended up what, going through, right? Growing in and getting corrupted? Yeah, so they ended up and they ended up going into the into the labyrinth into the uh, I believe it was into the Umbra to fight the worm and they become corrupted. They end up doing what's called dancing the black spiral and that's what corrupts them completely. It's 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 I mean it's a fascinating story. There's a whole tribe book that you can get on the White Howlers. Uh, it's a great it's a great story. It's a tragic story because again, they thought what they were doing was good. And what they didn't realize is that the worm had worked its little tendrils into some of the elders and convinced the elders, Hey, this is what you need to do. When it was the worm all along that was guiding them and corrupting them and ultimately destroyed them. Yeah. It's the, uh, the fall of Numenor. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Leave it to Nolan to bring it back to a Lord of the Rings reference. Yes. Yes. I, I like, I like werewolf. I like the idea of it. Um, it, from my understanding too, kind of talking with you guys, it seems to be vampire is not very 
Vampire feels more political heavy. It sounds like Werewolf is a little more combat, or at least, I mean, not combat heavy, but at least a little more, which isn't really hard to do, I don't think, but... No, I think you're absolutely right. Vampire definitely lends itself to... So here's how I always looked at vampires. Vampires, you know, they're deep, they're dark, they're sexy, they're ancient, they live forever, they have all these powers. And there's a lot of romanticism that's associated with with vampires. And I think that's what, especially when it came to live action role-playing, you know, that drew a lot of people to vampire to play these, these really sensual sexy creatures uh and and like you said they're political they have these long lives they can say you wronged me today i will avenge this in a hundred years and and they'll build you know for a century they'll build their revenge against you werewolves lives are a flash in the pan uh very seldom do you see an older werewolf it happens don't get me wrong and they're usually the people who are at the sept who lead the sept or or the lore keepers the galliards things like that who've been alive for a long time but they are warriors all of them every single one of them are warriors of gaia they go out and they face some of the biggest baddies that you can think of and there i mean there's a reason why there's the book of the worm the book of the weaver these these different uh, freak legion the book of the femori there's books written just about the bad guys that you can fight in werewolf because like you said it is a combat game and i can tell you that there are combats that i had in the one summer that i played werewolf i still remember and this is i mean we're going back to like 1995 96 somewhere around there some of the best combats i have ever played role played was playing werewolf the apocalypse this game lends itself to some amazing combat scenes nice it's it's absolutely a game i would love to run i think you nolan specifically would have a lot of fun once you got your character fine-tuned the way you like to do it um i think zach our other other player in our group would have a lot of fun with it uh, because i mean you talk about I think about your character Dervar that you played in in D and D, which was one of my personal favorite characters that you've played, because Dervar was just brash and kicked down doors, but yet he was trying to everything he did was to protect his his friends and Tally, the guy who lived next door. Um, so Dervar was, but he was big and brash and just like a bull in a china shop in everything he did, and I could see you know that's really how werewolves are they want to protect the people that they care about their kinfolk they want to protect their cairn they want to protect the set they want to protect gaia and in doing so like it's okay if they just ripped across a city block and destroyed every single ferrari that happened to be out on the street right <laughs> and with no apology so yeah I, I think it'd be a lot of fun to play and, and who knows maybe once we finish up our fall of london we can look at playing werewolf We've got a lot of games to play. We have a ton of games to play. So, all right. So, Nolan, that is the Breeds and Auspices. I know we've kind of gone way off track here, guys, but uh, it's okay. Uh, so, next week, we will be talking with Carrie from Werewolf the Podcast. She is coming up. She is on the show to talk to us again about the baddies and villains that you face in Werewolf. And again, we just scratched the, sur the surface because there is a ton of them. The week after that, we'll be wrapping up our Rage Across August as Nolan and I talk about the 13 tribes of Werewolf. Again, we're just going to be doing a quick overview. We're not going to go into a lot of depth. Um, we might give you some ideas on like, hey, this is what I can see here. This is what I can see there. Uh, but it'll be a lot like we've done here. So, Nolan, do you have anything else on Breeds and Auspices? I don't. I uh, Again, we... <laughs> 
very quick and dirty overview. I think you could really spend a lot of time getting into it, especially when it comes to character creation. A um, lot of opportunity for backstory just off of that there. So I, the potential for it, I think, is fascinating. And, and again, for werewolf lovers, we we're certainly didn't do it justice. But uh, yeah, thanks for letting us play in your world a little bit. Yeah. No kidding. I will say, if 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 this is something you're interested in, if we're all something you're interested in, you can of course pick up the 20th anniversary edition PDF on Drive Through RPG. You can get the print on demand versions as well. But also right now, it's the Dog Days of Summer sale for Onyx Path. So if you go to Indie Press Revolution, you can pick up the collector's edition, the deluxe edition of Werewolf the Apocalypse. Now keep in mind, this is like. A $200 book, but it is on sale for 50% off. So you're still dropping a C note to purchase that book. But if that's something you like, you like deluxe books, you like those collector's editions, this could be a great opportunity for, for you to get it, quote, on the cheap. Well, Nolan, that is all I have for this week. So we have reached that point of the show where if people would like to get a hold of us, we let them know how to do it. So how can they get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at nlemires, and that's it outside of stuff that you can get a hold of me through Patrick. And you can get a hold of me at pretty much all the social media outlets at 307RPG. Well, guys, that is our show for this week. Like I said, we'll be talking next week with Carrie about the baddies and villains of Werewolf the Apocalypse. I hope you join us in. Until then, have a good one. Bye.